So we're going to do start out with Psalm 116. Karen was asking what Psalm we're going to read. What do you know about Psalm 116? Anybody? Yeah. Where, where is that? Yeah, it comes right after 115. Comes right after 115. <laughs> yeah. Which is true, right before 117. <laughs> um, so Psalm 116 is one of the Hallel Psalms. Does that mean a psalm of thanksgiving? Yes. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. It was a psalm that would have been sung as part of the Passover. Um, do we want to read out Psalm 116? I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted, and in my dismay I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all the goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The word that we use. Praise the Lord. Um, so this, as I was mentioned, would have been one of the psalms that would have been um, part of the liturgy around uh, Passover celebration. So where we're at in John chapter 13 is uh, what sometimes people call the Last Supper, which there's a discussion or dispute as to whether this was a Passover uh, meal or not. So um, Karen told me that I shouldn't do long introductions, so I'm not going to do a long introduction this morning. I'm just going to read for you what John is about. <clears throat> Who can tell me what John is about? Yep. Yep. No believe and remain. So we read in John 20, 30, and 31. It says, Therefore, many other signs or miracles Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we know that John's about trying to help us understand who, who uh, the Christ is, who Jesus is. And that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in Him, in His name, that means in Him is eternal life, and that we understand that Christ came to not keep that life for Himself, but to give it um, 
sacrificially for the life of the world, that in his resurrection, his eternal life, that would be our eternal life. So we're in, in John chapter 13, and we know that this has something to do with the Feast of the Passover. So it says, Now, before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And I love that uh, that last phrase in the in the in the verse. He loved them to the end, or to the uttermost, um, or he loved them eternally. So this this is a, an indication of how deeply our our Lord, who died for us, cares for us, and we're going to see that developed in this passage. Um, just to clarify in my head, would a Passover feast be the same as what they call a Seder? Uh, so I'm trying to. Uh, they have they have a couple of different types of uh, meals. They have uh, they're both memorial meals. Yes, and I'll I'll say uh, for right now yes, and I'll clear. I'll go back and make sure that I'm answering correctly. How about that? Okay, Passover seder. Yeah, the Passover seder. So seder is it's I think it's a little bit broader than just a Passover as a memorial-type meal. But, um, yeah, for some reason my brain is not working this morning to say 100% yes, so I'll say 90% yes. And then I'll clarify. Karen's looking it up, so she'll correct me if I'm wrong. But, um, so what do we know about the Passover? What's the Passover about? Yeah, so it was basically, basically, uh, pardon? The Seder is Okay. It's the ritual retelling the story of the liberation from Israel. Right, so it's a memorial meal that, and so that Karen just took it from 90 to 100%. <laughs> <laughs> if you believe the other one. So, I'm not of, of uh, Jewish descent, and so I don't know all of the ins and outs of the tradition. I tried to study them, sometimes my brain fails me. Um, so the, the story of the Passover is uh, the, the Hebrew children are uh, in captivity, I should say the Hebrew nation is in captivity in Egypt. They got there, how did they get there? Anybody remember? Through Joseph. Yeah, through Joseph. And that Joseph was one who um, made uh, a deliverance for not only the Hebrews but for the whole world that point in time. So in that sense, Joseph was a type of Christ. And uh, we understand that Joseph was the one, was one of the uh, sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, uh, because he struggled with God, or he strived with God, and that um, he was the one that was betrayed by his brothers, and cast out, left for dead, and ended up, by being faithful and true to God, God put in a, a position uh, to, that he could save the nation and that he could save all nations, right? So we understand it was a great famine at that point in time. Um, so even though it isn't a perfect example of what's going on in, in the world as far as the struggle between life and death and sin and, and God's holiness, Nonetheless, you see it as, as kind of an example, and, uh, 
and, and Joseph recognized that. And so what happens is the people come into this place that they're not supposed to be, and they thrive there and grow as a great nation. So they come in as a, a group of 70, and they grow to a great nation. And Joseph died, and the Pharaoh and the, the, the memory of Joseph died out, and so the Pharaoh that comes in at a later point in time decides that these are really good worker bees and enslaves them um, and basically takes their wealth um, and the people are greatly oppressed and that's when Moses comes along right so Moses another great deliverer right another type of Christ in a way um, he's a priest and he uh, basically he's the the mouth of, of God God asked him to go and speak for him to Pharaoh saying, release my people. And we have a battle of the gods. That's the story of Exodus, the first part of Exodus, right? You got the powerful encounter of God, the true God, and Pharaoh, a false god. And so you see the the gods of the world are judged in the course of a, a progressive uh, series of plagues. And you get to the final plague, and what was that about? What was, the, what was the last plague? Pardon? Yeah, death of the firstborn. Why was that significant? I mean, it didn't kill them all. Pardon? Yeah, it's a, the inheritance is passed through the firstborn. So, um, by the death of the firstborn, it's uh, threatening the inheritance. Uh, of the families of the world. And so what did God do for the Jewish people? He, he took them through that, that death. Um, and that the angel of the Lord was going to come and that there would be a judgment on the world, <clears throat> the, the Egyptians at that time, and that um, through the death of a sacrificial lamb, the people would be preserved, they would be delivered. And the word deliverance is Exodus in the Greek. And that's why we get the name for that book. Um, it's called Exodus because that means deliverance. And uh, when they took the Hebrew scriptures and wrote them in Greek, that was the, the name that they took for the book. Um, it's also the same uh, word that's used when we read about the transfiguration in Luke where Jesus goes up to the Mount Hermon and on Mount Hermon, he's discussing the Exodus. And he's discussing it with a prophet and a priest. Right? He's discussing it with Elijah and Moses. And at that point, we see uh, Jesus revealed uh, in, in all of God's glory. In other words, he is fully human, right? So he had to trudge up that hill and experience all the trudging that goes along with climbing a high mountain. And that mountain is, uh, my memory is about 11,000 feet, um, at the highest point. And so he had to trudge up that hill with his companions. And he got there, and fully human, uh, what was recognized was the perfection of the perfect man. In many ways, the second Adam. So Paul even describes Jesus as the second Adam. And you read about it in, in Romans chapter 5. It talks about the first Adam through whom 
sin and death came, and the second Adam, through who came, whom came eternal life. And so we have this um, perfect human. And what would a perfect human look like? It would look like one who, um, on whom death has no hold. Right? So there was nothing in Jesus that warranted death. No one could take his life from him. It was not required because of sin. It was not required because of transgression. Everything about him was true. Everything about him was right. And what that's what happened in the transfiguration is that was fully revealed. So Jesus had essentially, um, at that point, he had no need of anything in this world. He could have stepped right into heaven. And that's what you see in the Mount of Transfiguration is that uh, there's this heavenly encounter and it tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us that there is life after death because there is Moses and Elijah. And there is Jesus perfected on whom death has no hold. And Jesus makes a choice at that point to lay down his life for the people. So it, it wasn't something that was uh, a last minute, you know, okay, I'm going to do this in the last week of his life. This was an intentional um, act of Jesus as fully God, fully man, to give up his life for the people. And when he came down the mountain, you read about this in Luke, it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, he knew the final course, and he was going to follow that course to the very, very end that he would be that Passover lamb, that he would be the one through whom his shed blood, the people would be protected from death and actually be delivered through that blood into new life. And so that's what that whole imagery is about in the Passover. So when does, uh, what? tell me what the, the liturgy of the Passover looks like. How does it occur when they remember it through the Savior? It is like what we celebrate in communion. It's a storytelling recounting what happened um, with that judgment of the world and deliverance from death in Egypt. And so the way that that looks, as I mentioned, um, I'm going to bring up, which one of these am I going to bring up? Uh, I'm going to bring up the, the last week of Jesus' life. And there is disagreement on these days. So um, I mentioned that Jesus came into Bethany, which is just beyond uh, the area where someone, after they had consecrated themselves for the Sabbath, it was beyond that uh, limit of how far they could walk. So uh, he arrives in Bethany, spends uh, the evening dining with his friends on, uh, uh, at the end of the Sabbath, the sundown meal uh, and that's when he's anointed for his burial of what's going to happen that he enters Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday the first day of the week that there's a period of ministry where he teaches at the temple and I would say that that period of ministry runs through Wednesday some would disagree and they would say no Jesus was actually um betrayed on Wednesday and crucified on Thursday and that that's required in order to have three days and three nights in the tomb and what I'll say is there's a whole lot of discussion around that the majority of scholars uh, 
believe that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. Now, Mitch told me that I can't be in heaven with him because I said that, because he thinks that uh, Jesus was crucified on a Thursday. What, I, what I'm going to refer to is a book by Harold Honer, and you've heard me talk about this before. It's called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And basically, he summarizes all of the different arguments and puts together uh, a reasonable chronology. And so what I'm presenting is what I believe is a reasonable chronology. But it's not necessarily perfect. Nobody knows. We aren't eyewitnesses to this event. And they didn't record things in the kind of scientific Western world way that we would measure things by today. They recorded things in an Eastern understanding of reality, which um, there was a lot of discussion about how days worked, right? So the Romans, um, who were very uh, progressive in, in their Western thought at the time, measured their day from what we call midnight. So in the middle of the, the dark period was the first, the beginning of the first watch, right? Or maybe it would be the second watch, depending on how you count it. But anyway, midnight. So we call it midnight. And at that point, they would start their day, and they would have 24 hours to go around until midnight again. And that 24 hours we call the day. The Jews had two different ways of reckoning a day. They would reckon a day from sunset to sunset or sunrise to sunrise. So sunset to sunset would be uh, an understanding of uh, the Judean uh, Jewish people. So the, the, the name that we got the Jews from was the remnant that was, uh, came back and resettled uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah when they brought the people back and rebuilt the wall and resettled Jerusalem. They were the captives that were taken away into Babylon and it was uh, Shealtiel and his descendants who were the leaders that helped bring that about. And Zerubbabel, you read about those guys, great names. Um, and they were the ones that brought back the captives from Judea that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. He brought, they brought them back, these leaders did, under the Persian rule. And the Persians, the Persian kings... Um, granted that they would have freedom to do that. And they rebuilt Jerusalem, and they rebuilt um, this, what we would call the southern part of Israel, and, uh, or Judea. And they were called the Jews. right? But there was the northern part that had been conquered by the Assyrians, and that included the part of, of Israel called Galilee. And so the Galileans from the north some of them were descendants of the Judeans. And, for example, we know that uh, uh, there was a carpenter that lived in Nazareth whose name was Joseph. And he was actually from Bethlehem, which is in Judea. So let me bring up a picture of, of Israel here. And that this northern part, um, so this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the area of Dan right up here. This is Mount Hermon up here. Um, this whole area, kind of down through this, this valley, which is called the Jezreel Valley, right here, um, all the way down through the area that was called Ephraim, all the way down uh, through Samaria, of which we get the, the people groups that had settled there called the Samaritans, 
um, to basically this border right here. This border right here is right at the break between the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And King David, who was of the tribe of Judah, was from a down in an area down here called Hebron. And it, if we, when we read through Samuel, we found out that David was first king in Hebron. But David wanted to unify the peoples that had been under the time of the judges. They had every man did what was right in his own eye and uh, own eyes, and they basically had a very divided. Uh, they they didn't even have a nation at that point. It was all tribal. And so he wanted to unify all these tribes into a nation, and this nation became so great that under his successor, Solomon, it actually went all the way up to the Euphrates River in its expanse. And it came all the way over here into this area. This is the Mediba Plateau in Jordan. And it came over here where the Midianites were down here and the Moabites and Ammonites were up here. So it became a very big empire at one point. Um, but the nation itself unified under David, what he did is he moved this, the capital of the nation from Hebron to a city that he conquered called Jebus and became uh, Jerusalem, right? And the Jebusites were kicked out and David settled this area and there's a little spit. Um, let me see if I can uh, show you one of the pictures. I'm going to take you to some pictures. This is what um, that city rebuilt after uh, the Romans um, looked like. And I'm going to see if I can get you a little bit further out picture here um, that shows the city of David. Uh, I should have set these all up ahead of time. Oh, there's a good-looking girl in there. Um, okay, so let me see. Okay, here we go. Now we're getting... So... This, is, this city is built on kind of a high plateau. It was a threshing floor. There was a threshing floor there because everywhere that there would be a high mountain on this main ridge that runs down through, let me take you back to the map. So there's a, a ridge, you can see it in brown here. That's the hill country. And there's kind of a, a peak or a natural uh, ridge line that runs through that. Along that ridge line is where uh, people, as they would grow wheat, and barley from this side. So what happens is the, the moisture comes in off the Mediterranean. It starts dumping on this area called the coastal plain. And then as it hits these uh, foothills here, um, you see a transition in the kind of agriculture that grows there. So pomegranates might grow down here that require a lot of moisture. As you start moving up into the hills and you see that uh, rain uh, shadow effect that occurs as, as air goes up to go over a mountain range and it dumps on one side and it's very arid on the other side. That's the break point right here. And so what would happen is, is that they would grow wheat on, on, and barley on this side and the winds are coming off of the, coming out of the east coming across um, the, uh, the coastal plain and rising up these mountains and it happens every day because you get a natural, uh, as the sun's out during the day, you get thermals and it creates a, an updraft and that wind comes in and it creates a natural breeze that happens about noon every day. That's how they would thresh. They would take the wheat, 
They would go to these high points here, and they would throw that in the air, and they'd separate the wheat from the chaff. And they would have these special areas that were kind of uh, uh, known high points where people would congregate, and they called them threshing floors. And you can go to them today. They still have threshing floors in a place that was known for this, a place called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And this guy Joseph, even though he lived up here, he was from down here in a city called Bethlehem, which is right here. And um, the reason I bring this up is because there were people in this northern country, even though it had been resettled by the Assyrians, and they wouldn't be properly called Jews, they were still of that same descendancy, still of the same Judean descendancy, and so there was a pure group of peoples that settled in Galilee that were of that descendancy that uh, appreciated the, the Jewish religion. And they would have been as zealous about it as some of those in the south, and the big zealots down here in the, in the tribe of Judah would have been called Pharisees. So the Pharisees were actually a sect of very religious, you know, zealous religious people uh, for, the, for the Jewish heritage and that descendancy that came down from David um, that during the Greek uh, oppression of this, before the Romans came in, uh, that were the Greeks, and under the, at the very end of that Greek rule, there was uh, a, a revolt because there was a, a Greek uh, leader that came in, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And he did all sorts of abominations in the temple. And there, these religious zealots came in and they retook the temple and reconsecrated it, which we read about in John when we were reading about the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, they rededicated the temple. <coughs> so the Pharisees came out of that religious uh, zealot group and the Maccabeans. And so we understand that there were some really, really zealous religious nuts we call them nuts, because they took it to the point where the religion was more important than what they were religious for or about. The, the practice of their religion had become so stringent that um, no one could come to God through that, right? Not even themselves. And so Jesus didn't have much good to say about that, you know, incredible zealot uh, religion, but he did have a lot to say about the condition of the heart that's wholly devoted to him. And what happened is up in Galilee, you had people like that that still had this um, religious consciousness um, and that they were, I would say, they were good uh, Jews. So the fishermen that Jesus hooked up with, uh, John and James and Peter and Andrew, they were fishermen and they were good Jews. Before the turn goes, yeah. is this still a tradition? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> we'll talk. What is this? Wait, wait. Was this back on time? Yeah. So what is, what's days? a day? What's, so it has to do with what's a day? What day was Christ crucified? Was this a Passover meal? Right. So you have to understand all of this of what's going on in order to understand what's a day, because these people in the north here had a different way of reckoning a day than the people in the South. 
The people in the north reckoned a day from sunrise to sunrise. And the people in the south reckoned a day from sunset to sunset. So depending on how you start the day determines when these events are occurring. Because did it happen Thursday? Did it happen Friday? Um, was it the preparation for the Passover? Was it the Passover itself? So that's why I asked about the Passover. What is the Passover? Well, the Passover had uh, a point where there was a lamb that was without blemish that was brought to the altar and was sacrificed. All right? And we read about that in Leviticus chapter 23. So I know that all of you have really good eyes and you can read this from the back row. Um, so in uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5, it says, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Okay? So this has to do with when that lamb was sacrificed and when was the Passover. And when would they have that Passover meal? And is this meal that's talked about in John chapter 13, that meal? Because uh, the day of preparation is when the, the lamb would have been sacrificed. And if you actually go and look, if you Google, okay, so I, I even have Google up here. This is the Jewish calendar for 33 A.D. And in the, the, the Hebrew calendar, 33 A.D., um, there was... If I go to the month of Nisan, on a Friday, they would have had, Friday the 14th, would have been that day that's talked about in Leviticus. That there would have been, it would have been the, the, the Passover. That was the Passover day. And so depending on when you reckon a day determines what this meal was. Whether it was the Passover meal or whether it was the preparation day. And was Christ sacrificed on the preparation day as the lamb? Or is there a different understanding of the Passover? That what, what the Christ does for us? Is it his blood that's shed before the Passover? Or is this God's Passover itself on crucifixion, I would say, Friday? So we have the 14th, which is the Passover. And we have the 15th, which is then the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's what's talked about in Leviticus. And so this is uh, an accurate calendar reckoned based on the lunar cycle that they would have uh, had back in that day. And some of them might have said, well, my preparation day actually starts on the 13th, or no, my preparation day starts on the 14th, depending on whether they were from Galilee or whether they were from uh, Judea. And so, if you were from Galilee, um, this would have been a Passover meal that started uh, at, if you were from uh, Judea, would have been a Passover meal that started at sunset. Okay, so, I don't know how this is working, so I assume Saturday is the last day of the column, right? Yep. And Sunday's the next day? Yeah, so this so is this the is Sabbath right here. Pardon? You're saying Passover was Friday. Passover was Friday. And then Christ Yep. That's what I'm saying. That that's what's talked about in Leviticus uh, chapter 23. So they're going to have the 
which is why they couldn't travel. And why Jesus, the night before, the farthest that he can go is up the Mount of Olives. He can't go all the way over the Mount of Olives to Bethany. Because that would have been too far, because he had already gone through the consecration, he had already was already in this, this uh, holy day uh, of Passover. But you can also see that the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on Sabbath. So Sabbath is Saturday. So that would have been a special Sabbath. We read about that. That they, the, the Jewish leaders, one, they couldn't, um, one, they had to get Christ down off the cross before the Sabbath started, which for the Judeans would have started at sunset. So he had to be um, crucified and, and died before sunset, which is why they would break his legs if he hadn't already died, uh, because then he would suffocate, and he would die, and they could take him off the cross before sunset. Um, because they had to make sure that the Sabbath, which was a special Sabbath, they couldn't violate. But they actually took Jesus to Pilate to be sacrificed on Passover. That would be appropriate if it's the Feast of the Lamb. Right. But I never I, I came out and did it. So I don't know. Yes. Because then the meal would be the previous. Day, it would be Thursday night. Which is. Our Thursday night. I guess if it's after dark, it could be considered. Right. So uh, it depends on, on how you count it. So if you counted um, the Passover from sunrise to sunrise, then uh, for the Judeans that would have been from the morning uh, of that Friday until the morning of uh, Saturday, right? And so that means that uh, in their mind that would have been the preparation day and the, the Passover feast would have ended. So it would have ended at, or the preparation would have ended at sunset, and the feast would have immediately followed at twilight. And so they would have celebrated the Passover meal uh, on Friday night, but the Judean tradition would have had it on Thursday night. So it depends on whether you're from Galilee or whether you're from, yeah. So that's why you get this mix-up. Which night was it? And was this a Passover meal, or was it just another any old meal? Well, you read in the other three gospel accounts that this was a Passover meal. And if you look at all of the reasons, for example, if it wasn't a Passover meal, Jesus could have gone to Bethany and spent the night with Lazarus and Martha and Mary. But he didn't. He, could, he was already into this um, liturgy of celebrating the Passover um, because that's, that would have already started for him. And he would have not been able to go any further than the, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives based on how far you could walk. And what you find is that you see this whole uh, John 15, for example, with the, the vine and the branches, right, um, which we're going to eventually get to. Uh, 
is part of what Jesus would have seen as he walked from where the where the dinner would have been held in Barnabas's house in an upper room, uh, which is within the city wall. And let me show you that. As he walked to the Mount of Olives, so um, the reason I pointed this one out is because this is from the south, so this is the city of David, and it has a separate wall around it. I'm going to bring up a wall picture here. So this is the wall that would have been ancient um, Israel. And so what you see here, this is uh, the city of David down here, the temple mounts up here. The reason I brought up this picture is because of the gates. These are the various gates that would have gone into the city. There's one here in the north called the Sheep Gate. The reason that is called the Sheep Gate is because that's where they would bring the sheep in for the sacrifice. Right here is uh, the temple because you come in that Sheep Gate and you're actually going uphill um, to a threshing floor that David bought um, from a guy that owned it back when David was uh, the king and that's where the temple was built was on that threshing floor and today there's a mosque there um, but you come in through the sheep gate you go right past um, as part of this let me see if I can go backwards now you go right past so there's the temple this structure right here which is called the Antonio, Antonio Fortress let me see if I can come around and get you a good picture of Antonio Fortress. So, um, over here, which I just went past really quickly, is the pools of Bethsaida, which are sometimes called the sheep pools, because the sheep would be watered there, and the, the shepherds would get refreshment there. That's where a guy was healed. They would come in through the sheep gate. They would be going to the temple, which is right here. They go right past the Antonio Fortress, which is where Pilate had his... Uh, rule from that was the governor's palace and they were brought they brought Jesus before Pilate just as the sheep would have been coming in at the sheep gate and they he was tried there so as the sheep had come in through the sheep gate they brought Jesus to, to Pilate on trial right there at that point and then he went from here the Antonio Fortress and because he had to um, you couldn't make this sacrifice if you read about how they do the sacrifice they, a part of it is on the altar and part of it has to be taken outside the gate and you read about that in Hebrews in, in Hebrews the, um, is trying to help us understand all of this figurative thing that happened and how it relates back to the Jewish religious practice um, let me see if I can get that coming up here so here's a little bit further away and you can kind of see the outer wall you can see this inner wall of the city. And I'm going to zoom around here. Okay, here we go. Here's a picture. Here's the temple. Here's the Antonio Fortress. Jesus would have been brought up these stairs. Sheep gates right over here. Um, and that's where he would have been tried. That's where he would have been scourged. Then he came down, had to come down carrying his cross and go through and exit this gate right here. And that... That is the gate of the city, so that he was crucified outside the gate of the city. And he would have been carrying his cross uh, through here, and that's called the Via Della Rosa today. And you can go there and you can walk it. It comes out this gate 
to uh, a rock outcropping here. And that rock outcropping was called Golgotha. And you can see it's inside uh, a different fortified part of the city, but it's outside the official city wall, outside the city gate. And um, is we, you know, it's like we had this idea that no, he was taken out to the country somewhere. Well, yes and no. He was taken outside the gate to a rock outcropping, and that's where he was crucified with uh, two others. So, uh, the reason I bring this up is because it all has to do with this liturgy of the Passover. And nobody can say for absolute certain, okay, did this happen on Thursday? Did it happen on Friday? Was Jesus actually, did his time of death occur at the same time that the sheep would have been being presented at the altar in, as the preparation for the Passover, with the Passover meal starting at twilight, um, which would have been one group of people's belief, or was he, did he get crucified on the Passover itself after the, uh, as you would read in the account in Exodus where the Passover lamb was slain and the meal was prepared, which is the meal that they're commemorating, right? So did that meal occur on Thursday night? Did it occur on Wednesday night? Did it occur on Friday night? There's a lot of dispute uh, as to exactly when that occurred. But what we know is that Jesus was our Passover. It is through his shed blood that he accomplished uh, both um, forgiveness of our sins and uh, remediating the penalty of that sin such that he could he conquered death. And of course the Garden of Gethsemane. Ah, okay. So the Garden of Gethsemane in this picture, here you see a rock wall, that's because this is a model and people are standing up here at the top of this rock wall, but let me take you uh, a little bit further around here. Let me go past this cute girl again. Um, let's see if I can get a good picture. Okay, so here, let me back up a little bit. So look at the temple area again. Here in the temple, so this is the temple, and the altar would have been right here in this court. So there's, there's a, an outer court and an inner court. And the, the altar would have been here, and the sacrifice is presented on the altar, and then the high priest on the Day of Atonement takes that sacrifice into the temple, through the holy place, into the holy of holies. And, then, and that blood sacrifice is presented at the mercy seat of God, which is the horns on the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, of which above that are the cherubim. And you read about that in a, in a different account about the Day of Atonement. Um, but that's uh, what we read about in Hebrews that Jesus actually did for us. That that Holy of Holies was separated from the Holy Place. In the Holy Place, there are three things. There's the showbread, there is the, the light, the candelabra, and there is the incense altar. And if you look at it, you know, if you walked in, showbread, lampstand, incense altar, and then there's a curtain to the Holy of Holies. So the prayer of the saints, the incense, is going up before the curtain that separates us from the mercy seat. And what Christ did is he actually tore down that curtain. His sacrifice made it no longer necessary that we would be separated from the mercy seat of God. But rather we could present our prayers directly at the mercy seat of God. You read about that in Hebrews 
right? That we can now approach the throne of grace, right? That's what Christ did. And we read about that that temple, uh, that Holy of Holies, that curtain was actually torn from the top down when Christ died. Right? So that's, those are all the different figurative things that we see that actually are being accomplished uh, here in the, the, the temple area. Well, just outside the temple area, you'll see there's a gate here. That gate is called the Eastern Gate. Sometimes it's called the Golden Gate or the Beautiful Gate. And out of that gate, and the reason it's called the Golden Gate or the Beautiful Gate, because the sun rises in the east, right? And so their, their orientation in this part of the world is not north. Their orientation is east. It's to where the sun rises. So all of our maps have a, a compass and there's an N and you orient everything by that compass. Their compass is, is turned 90 degrees such that their point of orientation is east. So this would have been the light coming directly into the temple. And when you read about when God left the temple in Ezekiel, so there was the time when the Babylonians were coming in and they were going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the people had become so despicable that God left them. And you read about God leaving the temple. And that you read about it. He's coming out of the temple here, going out through the courtyard, coming out through the eastern gate and going up over the Mount of Olives because what happens is as you go down this valley here, this is the Kidron Valley, and on the other side of the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. God leaves going to the east. When he returns, the king enters down the Mount of Olives. They laid down palm branches. He came in this golden gate up to the Temple Mount, and that's when that's it was the beginning of this week. God returned to the temple. That's what the symbolism is of what's happening here. And when we read about in Revelation, when uh, the second coming of Christ, when all is, is uh, put down, so right now death has been conquered. And Jesus said that. He said, if you believe in me and you die, you will live. There is no longer, death has no hold on you. Even though we live in a corruptible, corrupted body, we have the eternal life today that we will have with him forever. And that's because he conquered death when he rose from the dead. When he died on the cross and rose from the dead, he conquered death. But when he returns the second time, we call it the second coming, he comes on the Mount of Olives. And he enters through this gate. And New Jerusalem happens, right? So you see all of this figurative language all about what's occurring in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. This is what it's all about. It's all in this geography, and it all has to do with these people and their history, all the way back to Adam, right? This is an incredible story. And so what happens is, is if you go out this eastern gate, you come down this valley. I'm going to take this forward a little bit. You actually cross this... Uh, valley here is called the Kidron Valley. It's very steep. And on the other side of that, which I don't have a picture of, is Mount of Olives. At least I don't have it easily accessible. Um, and so where Jesus was for the, for the Last Supper was in this part of the city over here. And he had to come back through the Temple Mount and over 
one of those gates on the inside, on the temple side, there's a big grape cluster. Because you recall the story about how the people came into the land and they went and the spies checked it out. And what did they bring back? They brought back big clusters of produce, right? This is a land of milk and honey. This is the land that God promised us. Um, and so they have this big grapevine uh, carved in the stone. At least at this point in time, it was destroyed by the Romans. And so Jesus is walking through, and he talks about the, brine, the vine and the branches. Right? So you see that in chapter 15. So what happens is, they're celebrating in chapter 13, this Passover meal over here. And then what you read about in 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 is Jesus' walk through here, down through that valley, up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's betrayed. Or actually, the betrayal's already occurred, where he's arrested. And we know that some of the people that were with him in this, so I mentioned that this happened in the house of Barnabas, and that's tradition. It's not, it doesn't say in the Bible, yeah, this was Barnabas's house, but based upon uh, extra-biblical literature and uh, just kind of the chronology that we can put together from the gospel accounts, that it was probably Barnabas, who was one of these like Nicodemus, who was a believer in Jesus, like Lazarus and Mary, that had a place of regard in the circle of disciples, and he was also a man of, of means, and he had a nephew by the name of John Mark, who was a young boy at this point in time, would have probably been present in the house at the time that Jesus and uh, his apostles here were sharing this meal, which was a Passover meal. There's a lot to say it was a Passover meal. Um, and he would have gone with them, kind of traipsing behind, as they went to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus was arrested, you read about in one of the other gospel accounts, that there was a young boy, that when Jesus was arrested and the scuffle happened, that uh, one of the guards grabbed him by his robe, and he ended up running off, leaving his robe behind. He ran off naked. Pardon? Yeah, first streaker. Uh, that was probably John Mark, who later would go through his own set of trials, and then would um, spend considerable time with Peter, who we also understand from this account is going to deny Jesus three times. So what you see is you see in this Passover meal, Jesus bringing all of history into focus. And he's um, showing the depth of his love for his people, including the one who would betray him. The one in whom he would give a piece of bread, gift, which was a very significant thing. That Judas Iscariot had a place of privilege at the Last Supper. He was on Jesus' left. Remember how the apostles fought at one point, yeah, I want to be in your left, I want to be in your right when you come to your, your throne and your kingdom? And Jesus said, well, that's not for you to determine. Guess who was there? Judas was there. And yet, Jesus knew that he, uh, Judas was going to betray him, and he even says so. But he washed his feet. He gave him a dipped morsel. I, I'm of the opinion that if Judas would have repented, he would be saved. 
but he could not bring himself to trust in the one whom he had betrayed. So we understand there is a point of personal accountability and a personal uh, choice involved in salvation. It isn't something that you're predestined. You can't be born a Christian. Not in the sense of natural birth through a man. But you have to be born again through the Spirit of God. And that that comes through um, believing in Him. Trusting Christ. Trusting Him for your very life. That's what it's all about. right? And that's what he's saying here in, verse, in chapter 13. I'm going to read 13 because I know we're almost out of time here. Um, I wanted to set all of this stage because now that you have that stage set, when you read this, it should pop off the page. Now, before the Feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments, and taking the towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. I'm going to make an interpretation here. You have no inheritance in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives, whom, whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is a, a key of salvation, right? It's one of those key verses, what I just read. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which of them he was, of which he was speaking. There was reclining it on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured, him, gestured to him and said to him, Tell us, whom it is of whom he is speaking. And he, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Then Jesus answered, That is the one whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You seek me, you will seek me, as I said to the Jews. Now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So, in that, you see... Jesus talking about what he's come to do. You see um, that he is offering that to the whole world, including those who reject him. And that he is able and willing to restore even those that, although they rejected him, turned back to him. It's an incredible story of Jesus loving those, as it says at the beginning, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. Next week we'll take apart some of the, the pieces that, um, you know, I mentioned inheritance in there. Um, we'll talk about the new commandment, what that means. Um, is the old commandment null and void? What's that about? Um, so we'll, that's where we'll uh, finish unpacking those things in 13 and look ahead to chapter 14. Let's go ahead and close here in prayer. Um, Lord, we just thank you for opportunity to again come to you and your word. And, uh, I just think as we approach uh, the Easter season, we should read uh, what some call the Upper Room Discourse, this 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, repeatedly, uh, such that it's um, the very thoughts that run through our, our mind during the day, pondering who you are, what you've done, how deeply you love us. Um, Lord, what, how that should change us, how we should be in your presence, being loving as you are loving, being humble as you are humble, um, sacrificing as you sacrifice, Lord. We know that that's a, a high call, and it's impossible for us, but you assure us that if we take your yoke, that that's a light burden. And Lord, we just ask that um, you would help us as we struggle through our day and struggle through being yoked by you, that you would help us to truly uh, be yoked in that way with you. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, we ask that you provide and protect, and we thank you so much for your service for us. We ask as we go out here, up here to the service this morning, you'd be with Bob and others as they share the, your good news this morning of who you are and what you've done. Also enable us to do that in the communities in which we dwell. Thank you for this Lord Jesus in your name.